0: of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina with Pembroke. In 30 Brave minutes, we will give you something interesting to think about. Joining Jeff Frederick, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, is Dr. Karen Ferrizado, a research assistant professor at the UNCP Biotechnology Research and Training Center. Get ready for 30 break minutes. about how critical scientific research is to our future. According to the National Cancer Institute, more than one out of every three Americans, 38 plus percent, will receive a cancer diagnosis at some point in their lifetime, most after they reach the age of 50. The rate of growth internationally is climbing even as the death rates for many forms of cancer in America are improving. By 2050, the world will cross the 9 billion population threshold making scientific agriculture a critical element for feeding the occupants of the planet. That additional population, two billion more than today in 2019, will also create opportunities for infectious disease to spread, require even more renewable sources of energy, and some innovation on disposal of waste products of all types. Lest we think the sky is falling, every reason exists to believe that the glass of water is at least half full, maybe more. At the risk of crudely summarizing the Broad Institute's description, CRISPR innovations, clustered regularly, interspaced, short, palindromic repeats, is creating interesting opportunities for genome editing. CRISPR is both a scientific and specific term and a shorthand of sorts for ways and systems that can be programmed to target specific stretches of genetic code, and to edit DNA at precise locations. Researchers, then, can permanently modify genes in living cells and organisms and, in the future, may make it possible to correct mutations at precise locations in the human genome in order to treat genetic causes of disease. The future is also very bright in cellular agriculture, brain-computer interfaces, nerve regeneration, and prosthetics. Corporate and academic researchers and funders have seen the possibilities of these new pathways of research, and optimism is high on many fronts. Some important biotech research is occurring right here on the UNCP campus in various labs, in classrooms, and drawing boards. Dr. Karen Ferrizado was a research assistant professor in the UNCP Biotechnology Research and Training Center, and she explores multiple pathways at the molecular and cellular level, and their effect on neuronal connections. These research initiatives relate to any number of neurological illnesses and conditions, including Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, brain cancers, and post-traumatic stress disorders of various etiologies. Karen is with us today to shed some light on her research and to help us understand some ideas that are challenging but are touching more and more families every year. Hi Karen, welcome to 30 Brave Minutes.
1: Hello, thank you for having me here. So I'm very excited to talk about the research that we do here at UNCP and about my career and things like that.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Great. Well, let's start with the basics. Tell me about your background. Why did you become a scientist? How did that all unfold?
1: Okay, so I think the first thing for you to become a scientist, you need to be very curious about how things work. So, I always was curious to see how animals behave or things like that. And then I did my uh, bachelor's degree in biomedical. And I was debating with myself if I should go to the medical school or stay in the biology field, etc. And then I decided to be a scientist because... I would like to see how things work, not too clinical, not get in touch with patients, but uh, understand how uh, cells function and uh, all the process that we have uh, happening in our body. So, and then uh, after my bachelor's degree, I had my first experience uh, in a neuroscience lab in Brazil, the, the country that I'm from. So, there, I was studying how the brain works uh, on the health, how um, uh, the brain manages uh, the heartbeat uh, and all the neural systems, uh, stuff like that, and then after that, I was working on my PhD. Then I started uh, uh, understanding how the things uh, occur when we have a disease uh, going on, so then. Uh, on my PhD was when I first started working with, with Alzheimer's disease, this was in 2010. So you
0: grew up in Brazil, you correct. got interested in animals and a variety of other things, you wanted to know how things work and so you started to consider what you might do to answer those questions and you became a scientist.
1: Correct, correct, and I, I fall in love. I fell in love. So uh, the, the labs, the research lab was uh, where uh, I found myself and said, okay, yeah, that, this is exactly what I'm going to do for the rest of my
0: life. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that. Let, let's talk for a little bit about how similar different schools are maybe in Brazil than the United States. What were some of the experiences you had? growing up that got you so excited about answering these questions?
1: Okay, is yes, a very uh, great point for we address. Um, is a little bit different, it's a little bit different. I see here in United States, all the research is uh, dedicated for the community. I see the relationship with the community, bringing students, high school students to the uh, college, uh, let them experience a little bit more about what do we do here, what do we do with research, what you can become uh, in uh, other t- type of uh, careers, etc. other type of jobs. So it's a little bit different. So everybody knows that um, Brazil, the country that I'm from is a third world country. So we don't have all the technology that we have here in US. I had a great opportunity to come here with uh, Dr. Ben Barr. So when I was working with my PhD, and this is what, uh, what I say uh, every time for a students: how uh, being a scientist, you can you have an international um, career uh, because you can make a network, you can talk with people uh, in, in another country. So I was writing a report, a year report for my funding agency there the, from my scholarship, and then I always used to cite a Dr. bar uh, reference, like his works, to support my research line there. And then uh, uh, Brazil that time was offering scholarship for students to go abroad, learn techniques in countries like US or Europe. And I applied for uh, uh, one of this funding, this scholarship. And then I thought, okay, so let me contact this professor And let's see what he answered, and I was running out of my time because we should go out abroad and then come back before a year we have, you know, we defended the thesis and stuff like that. And then I contacted Dr. Benbar, and he replied at the same day. Afternoon, I sent to him um, an email uh, in the morning and he replied the afternoon and he said, yeah, oh, good to hear uh, that you're also a scientist, very exciting. Of course, you can uh, join my lab. So, and then he explained a little bit more about the current research that he was doing. and then. So
0: you're in Brazil, you're doing your own work, you're trying to get all of your degrees done and get all your projects done, satisfy your funders for your research and the digital world of the 21st century brings you in a connection with Dr. Barr's research you reach out to him express your interest and then he gets back and says why don't we why don't we work together and that's how someone leaves Brazil and comes to southeast north carolina
1: correct correct everybody asked me how you you got in here so this is the answer so I contacted him i never met him before and then he said, yes, you can join my lab, so, and then after that, I came to here, I have an amazing time here, I learned a lot of things, and uh, we, started, we started this uh, connection, so we started this network. When I came back to Brazil, I finished my PhD, and then he invited me to come back here as a postdoctoral researcher. So all, right, so
0: all um, researchers, all academics work a little bit differently. My my area is history, and so I spend a lot of time in archives, pouring over old documents. Talk to us a little bit about how uh, you do research. What is the lab like? What's the process like? Tell us about a typical day.
1: Okay, so on a typical day, we are in the biotech center here uh, out of campus of UNCP, and then is Dr. Barry and I, Uh, we have our research line related with neurodegenerative disease, and then we try to understand how cells get sick, and then what is going on at molecular levels that leads to the cells become, you know, uh, do not regenerate, and then start trigger the disease. So we have several students, UNCP students, that are also uh, joined the Dr. Barr's research there, and when they get there, we also uh, say to them, okay, so you guys have the background from from the college, but now let's think big to small. So what do we do here? We try to see how cells work. So big is the function. So we see how the body. A uh, 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 person walking, so behaving, etc. But okay, let's so uh, let's uh, go in and see how the cells works to make you know this uh, amazing uh, machine that is our uh, body, especially the brain.
0: So you start with the biggest possible picture that you can imagine, and then you compress it down until you get to a very specific portion of how As the body works and then you try to unravel that
1: exactly exactly so the students have this experience so this is what how is very important they emerge this themselves uh, for this opportunity to experience how uh, research lab works uh, so not necessarily everything that we see in the college uh, uh, is, is explain everything so sure. there is when they have experience to seed to think logical and of course becoming a problem solver because not everything works so good how we think we would like that uh, we wish that things would work so and then they start thinking logical oh okay so this is start because we have this in the cell the cell express that and then leads to This uh, response so this is why uh, how we uh, try to explain to them
0: so I want to ask about you know how you put thoughts together and ideas and how you find mysteries that you want to unravel but before we get to that idea tell us a little bit about some of the equipment you have in the lab what are some of the machines what are some of the things that you work with every day so that our listeners can get a sense of what you're doing from moment to moment what kind of equipment is out there to help you Uh, unravel these mysteries.
1: Okay, so to understand and to see how cells work, we need to analyze things microscopically. We have a very nice confocal microscope there. So this machine we got, I think, three years ago and have helping us a lot about our research there. So we can analyze how proteins for example, are uh, expressed and in specific brain region. So it's very amazing because we can uh, have a connotation of that, we can make a qualitative results about that. So it's very, very important for our research.
0: So you're looking at brain level pieces of uh, intercellular uh, items, and then you're using the microscopy to really get a sense of what's different about this slice versus another one, from this side of the brain versus another one?
1: Correct, studying different brain regions. Uh, we can have a, a, a slice from a brain region, uh, from an experimental model, um, using a model of a, of a disease or a health model to understand how things work, and then we put in a dish, and then after that we stain with different antibodies that are uh, tags proteins, and then we can quantify so it's very important because for Alzheimer's disease, for example, uh, we have different proteins that are, are a little bit malfunctioning, so there we can quantify and see, okay, so when we have this type of insult, we have this uh, uh, protein's express, uh, expression works in this way, and then of course we always compare with a control tissue. So this is how we uh, measure a uh, few things that are doing the disease. Another thing that is, uh, we use a lot there, uh, also to quantify proteins, is a Western blotting technique that is very important as well. So um, mostly scientists around the world, so they also use this. Uh, it's very important we measure how proteins are so in our brains, so proteins, Basically, we can uh, measure the function. So, if you, we have a down regulation of a protein, you can have a disease. Or if you have an upper regulation of proteins, you can also have a disease. So, and, the
0: and you can figure this out in part by looking at specific proteins from specific regions and comparing them to a typical or a control group protein. Correct. And then you can see what the similarities or differences are.
1: Correct. Correct. We also do RNA technique there, so we can see um, a transcription of a specific gene, So, and then we can measure and compare with a protein levels, transcription, and then we can have idea how our model is working and how this can be important for a mechanism of disease.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that model and about the kind of a hypothesis. So scientists, to some extent, a hypothesis they have a, an idea they want to test it they use their equipment to gather the data um, and then they try to see if they can find a specific pattern and then you have to go back and replicate it to make sure that all the steps you previously did to write it's got to be a little frustrating
1: oh yes it's, uh, uh, it, this is one thing that we uh, uh, teach students because uh, when they get in the lab and they start doing the procedures, all experiments and collecting data, and then you plot the data and then you see the result, now they realize how things are complex, how things are not simple. For you get a starting with a hypothesis, idea, and then you finally uh, have your answer. And not necessarily the answer is that what you expect. So most of the time, it's not, well, it's not exactly what you expected. So this is one thing, um, and is this is, is why uh, science is so exciting, because when you test one hypothesis, you ended up having a lot of questions in your mind, and then you have much more ideas. It, uh, having a, a, a answer that you were expecting or not. So you, say, you just see and say, oh, so this is leading to that. So we may uh, speculate more this pathway because this could explain better our, our, our hypothesis, not what we were thinking. So stuff like that is very exciting.
0: And so for researchers in all fields, sometimes the answer is not really what you're spending most of the time looking for. You're looking for the right question. And every hypothesis leads to you determining not just what the answer is, but did I ask the right question? And so over time, you narrow down to a question that might really eventually lead to an answer.
1: Correct, correct. So I read about people discovered a compound that could treat a type of disease uh, by a mistake in the lab. Mm -hmm. So using a wrong concentration, And then they said, oh my goodness, this concentration is supposed to uh, inhibit this pathway. And then they found that uh, this less concentration is not inhibiting, but is activating. And then this is starting a new uh, theory about how uh, this compound could work.
0: So part of why you have to be so rigorous in your note-taking and your lab reporting and to documenting every step is that when a mistake is made, you want to, one, know what that mistake is and, and when it happened, but, two, that mistake could open up really a better question or potentially lead you to a, a more complex answer.
1: Correct, correct. This is a, a, it, it, science is about uh, hypotheses, ideas, and testing these ideas, of course, with a basic background. So, yes, so uh, successful theories was made from uh, uh, mistakes made in, in the lab. This is why we also teach, uh, tell our students, so no worries. So this is important. You need to understand, you need to learn. Now you have, you know, uh, a new uh, outputs for you. So just let's do different uh, next, next time.
0: This is Chancellor Robin Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 brave Minutes. Well, look, you, you mentioned a fair number of terms, and so maybe we should sort of uh, clean some of them up. Uh, Alzheimer's, you mentioned degeneration. I know dementia is somewhere in there. Um, one in ten Americans under the age of 65 suffers from Alzheimer's disease, and about 48 million more worldwide suffer from one form of dementia or another. What is Alzheimer's disease? What do we know about it, and what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia?
1: Okay, so let's uh, answer uh, your last point. So, dementia is the symptoms. So, Alzheimer is a disease. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Not necessarily, because people, uh, elderly people, start thinking that, oh, I have episodes that I'm forgetting uh, things, and they start getting worried so this is not necessarily you're going to develop a disease. So well, I,
0: dementia. lots of people can have dementia but not have Alzheimer's.
1: Correct.
0: But correct. everyone who has Alzheimer's probably has some form of dementia.
1: Perfect. Perfect point. Exactly. So this is the point. So dementia not necessarily leads to the disease. But everybody that has uh, Alzheimer's disease will have uh, dementia. It's so dramatic how uh, the incidence of Alzheimer's right now, and the people start, uh, started saying why this uh, type of disease is affecting too many people now. The answer is because people are living more. So disease that used to kill people, like heart attack or stroke or cancers, so that research is very uh, clear right now. So we have a lot of uh, approach that can treat or prevent this type of disease, but not, a, uh, not the same thing with Alzheimer. So this is why we have, we, we, we are seeing m- uh, more people every day developing and being diagnosed with Alzheimer.
0: So it's like what we were saying earlier about questions. As we saw find answers to some questions and people start to live longer, we also find new questions to attack. The longer people live, statistically, perhaps maybe the, the more likely it is for them to get Alzheimer's?
1: Yes, yes, this is the point. Because only 10 to 5% is related with genetic uh, factor. So, so 90% to 95% of people uh, the, uh, that develop Alzheimer's disease is related with aging. So, now, uh, the first patient that was diagnosed with Alzheimer's was in 1901, so, and then we passed 100, more than 100 years, and now we're starting uh, uh, understanding a little bit more about what causes Alzheimer's, because if it's the aging process, is one of the main factors, okay, how aging affects our brain cells. So this is one uh, important point. So not necessarily all elderly people will develop Alzheimer. Not necessarily everybody that has the uh, hallmark proteins uh, that uh, the people uh, hear about uh, A-beta plaques or neurofibrillary tangles formed by tau protein will develop Alzheimer. So this is the main point how and why Uh, the aging process is starting uh, affect, in such a way, group of people and not others. So uh, I would like to uh, just uh, add one point how aging is an important factor uh, to develop Alzheimer because at your 60 or 65 years old, you have a big increase of people developing Alzheimer. At 70 years old, you double the the number of people uh, having Alzheimer. At 85 years old, you have 65% of elderly people having Alzheimer's. So, this is an important point.
0: So, a lot of what you guys are doing is you're working on this protein level and cow proteins and a lot of other things, and we'll get to that in a little bit because that's really what we don't know yet exactly about Alzheimer's. But let's start with even a more easy question. What do we know? What do we know about Alzheimer's? How people get it? How quickly it expands. What do we know?
1: Okay. So what science know about? Uh, we are first thing. They were thinking. Okay. Neurons are malfunctioning, and the communication between neurons is not efficient as used to be in the past. And then they developed a drug that helps this neuronal communication. But the neuronal communication is only the consequence of something that is happening. Uh, at the cellular level, at a cellular functioning, uh, that leads to this mo- uh, malfunctioning, mo- uh, the, the bad communication between neurons.
0: So the communication is the thing. The, the miscommunication is something we notice pretty pretty quickly, but we have to go a little bit deeper to figure out why the miscommunication is actually happening.
1: Exactly. So now uh, the drugs that we have in the market are treating this mis uh, miscommunication. So, but now all scientists are stepping back and say, okay, so we need to treat uh, the early onset of the disease.
0: Not so, the symptoms, but the underlying root cause.
1: Exactly. So, before you have a cure, you need to treat uh, uh, the onset. Um, and then now we know that several proteins are malfunctioning, accumulating. So, I like the analogy that uh, my colleague, Dr. Benbar, does. Um, we have comp- uh, uh, um, organelles inside the cells that works as a garbage disposal. So think in your kitchen, so you bring food to your house, and then you put it in the kitchen and you process the food there. Um, if you don't get away with your uh, all the trash, you start accumulating there. And then if you put the trash on your floor and then the telephone rings in another uh, corner, and then you start, you try to cross your kitchen, and then you can't reach uh, as you used to reach if you don't have any or uh, things blocking your, you know, your, your crossing there, or uh, sometimes you you can't even cross your kitchen to get the telephone. So this is what uh, uh, how things works inside the uh, neuro that is, is is developing a degeneration process when you have Alzheimer. The the cell has a or a garbage disposal inside called lysosomes, and then a uh, cell is, produ- is pro- producing uh, proteins there, and then the cell is not uh, uh, doing the clearance. So and then this uh, all this trash is starting accumulating there, and then stop all the other uh, uh, factors that we have inside the cell uh, for uh, functioning uh, properly when. Uh, how So at the to cellular work.
0: level, we have to be able to get rid of all of the interior waste products, the interior cellular waste products. And correct. if we don't, it stacks up, and then we got all kinds of problems.
1: Correct, correct. This is one main factor, one main factor that uh, uh, is also now is one of the biomarkers for you be diagnosed with Alzheimer or not. But how I said, it's hard you just say, If you have these high levels of this type of proteins, you're going to have Alzheimer's, not necessarily. So, and these proteins, of course, they are not, uh, uh, accumulation of these proteins is the problem. But these proteins are there, so they make a function uh, inside our neurons. They are important there. But then they start, you know, uh, misfunctioning, and then this is uh, leads to the problem. This is the issue.
0: So is it fair to say that not only do we want um, an adequate supply of the good proteins who can handle some of this, we also at the same time want to minimize some of the not-so-productive proteins that are in the par- in the middle of this as well?
1: Correct, correct. So uh, what do we know? Related with a genetic uh, factor, uh, we know that at uh, the People that develop an uh, urinal set related with a mutation in a specific gene is related with this, uh, one of the type of these proteins. So that we know, okay, so this protein, when uh, we have an overexpression, this will lead, will damage uh, uh, the neuron and will lead to a pathology that can cause pulpitosis. A pulpitosis is a, a death of a neuron
0: and so, so um, in one of the pathways you're hoping to continue to explore is the use of natural uh, extracts to treat or prevent some of this synaptopathology in the early stages
1: yeah so now um, we're a scientist uh, we are trying to uh, understand why some people are more have more probability to develop dementia uh, alzheimer's disease in fact and uh, then others so People were starting looking at uh, the incidence of Alzheimer disease in certain populations and why uh, other groups dev- uh, have more incidence to develop Alzheimer. For example, um, in Asia and uh, Japan, they have less incidence of Alzheimer's disease than here in America. So what what do they do? What is the difference? What is the lifestyle that makes less, uh, you know, uh, decrease the probability for you to develop the, uh, this type of uh, disorder? And then we, uh, we we starting thinking that uh, the environment factors can affect what uh, how our body will uh, behave. So one thing that a natural extract, like Native Americans, for example, they. Oh, we always have like a grandmother say, okay, if you're sick, you can have this tea. A green tea is good for you, or uh, ginseng uh, increase your metabolism, stuff like that. So then, as the scientists are more interesting in things that can prevent, mm-hmm. so not lead to uh, uh, the, the disorder, in fact. So we are testing a natural extract. That is making a very nice progress for the garbage disposals. So we are making, using these extracts, natural extracts, making these garbage disposals working better, then we have a reduction of these pathological proteins over expressed in our model of Alzheimer and then uh, consequently we have uh, a better uh, neuronal communication, we have synaptic markers going up, so it's working very,
0: very well. So potentially some natural extracts in a um, reasonable enough concentration or dosage could prevent that accumulation of those waste products or at least allow them to, uh, to get out of the intercellular problems quicker therefore you minimize the potential of contracting uh, the disease in the first place.
1: Correct, correct. So we tested in uh, two different ways. So we gave to our model, uh, model of uh, uh, disease of course, but we gave to our model uh, those before starting having the disease and then we saw a very uh, interesting uh, promising result. So preventing the decrease of many factors, many proteins that are, is very important for, for to keep the neuronal uh, cells healthy. And then we tested for a model that had uh, established um, disease, and then we gave him, them, and then they also uh, showed a very uh, interesting result, showing that they can uh, repair all the damage that uh, the, the, the insult caused.
0: And how exciting for you in all of this fascinating research and these new hypotheses and testing these results and analyzing your data that you're incorporating undergraduate students into so many of these activities. How rewarding is it for you to get a whole new generation of scientists excited?
1: Yeah, he's very excited. He's very excited. So we, we treat the students like our child. So when... We see they're developing tasks, uh, so new skills, they, uh, they develop the curiosity inside of them. They are very proud to make part of this team, and oh yes, we are using a drug that can potentially treat Alzheimer's disease, so and they, they get excited all the process, and of course, they also present data. So we uh, they do all the experimental process, and they, get, they collect the data, they plotted the data and they are able to uh, present this, you know, these results for the, all the public. So they, they they are very excited there. And we are very proud to be part of this uh, you know, this
0: process. And how rewarding for you to be able to think about one day, 20, 30 years from now, a uh, scientist will be interviewed for a podcast just like this. <laughs> and they'll say, how did you get your start in science? And they might say, well, when I was an undergraduate, I got to work with Karen Ferrazado, and she showed me some of these scientific techniques back when we were working on Alzheimer's disease and really um, got me hooked on being a scientist for the rest of my life.
1: That's true. That's true. It, it, it's, so, it's so exciting. It's so exciting because now, so I, I'm getting touch with more and more students. Now I'm mentoring my own students. Of course, I'm a part, I'm very proud to be part of Dr. Barr's lab and UNCP. now we see more students because we can see they developing and moving forward they, their careers. So we have students now uh, on the graduate school. So we have students join uh, army research. So it's very, it's very nice. So we're, we're starting getting old as well. So the people are asking, okay, uh, can you uh, can I have a reference letter from you and say yes so I, I was always thinking that um they will be a, a network in the future so I always think okay that students is uh, at NC State or that students in uh, in Tennessee so they will be my future network for sure That's I right. hope yeah I, I hope I'm looking forward uh, to work with them again
0: well, we're running out of time, but I want to ask you one more question, one last question before we go. What do you see as the future of science? How, how do you think uh, 20 years from now, researchers will be working? What kinds of questions will they be tackling?
1: Okay, this is a, it's not a simple question to answer. <laughs> but um, I think science it, changes as the world is changing. So... We will see things uh, uh, being, remake, uh, being uh being progressing, and I think the future is, is very exciting. So, I remember when we see that m- movie, the Back to the Future, <laughs> so they were thinking that in 2000, we were using cars, flying. I'm still <laughs> waiting. <joking. laughs> when is that going to happen? So, we always think that the future will be very technologic, but uh, I'm pretty sure, I don't know if we're going to have the cars flying instead of using the roads, but uh, I'm pretty sure that we will make a a lot of progress, for sure.
0: And maybe somewhere in Southeastern North Carolina right now, there's a young girl learning about science, and one day she will go to Brazil and spend part of her career there. Working on interesting questions, just like you, coming from Brazil amazing, to North Carolina. Amazing! Amazing!
1: Amazing!
0: Well, this has been great. Thank you for walking Thank us through you very your, much. your research and, Dr. Uh,
1: Frederick, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's great. great you to, very much.
0: Great, great to spend this time together. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. And join us next time for more Thirty Brave Minutes. Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis. Theme music created by Wiley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves! Good job, everybody!